Welcome to the Living in Portland, Oregon podcast with your hosts, Jesse Ray Dow and Jackson Ray Wilkie with the Real Agent Now Group. Real Agent Now Group. From morning coffee to those nighttime brewskis, they are here to tell you what it's like to eat, sleep, drink, play, work, and live in the Rose City. What's up, everybody? This is Jackson Ray Wilkie with the Real Agent Now Group right here in the Portland Metro. So excited about today's podcast, uh, Jesse and myself and about 150 other real estate agents um, around the area went and listened to an economic forecast by Pat Stone. He is the uh, executive chairman, founder, CEO of WFG National Title. It's actually the title company that we use. Um, and also, you know, he was an old CEO, president of Fidelity. Dude's been around forever. He does these economic forecasts, which are the best list and listen period so um, if you want to know everything about the um, economy industry perspectives you know the future are we in the recession which industries are going to get hit which areas of the nation will be hit literally everything um, we do have this video up on our youtube channel because i incorporate his slides so you actually get to see those but it doesn't matter um, you do get to listen to him in this too which is incredible so yeah, if you really want to know what's going on in the nation with uh, the economy and everything, this is the podcast you want to listen to. So, again, if you are moving, relocating, uh, you know, to the Portland Metro at any time, make sure you give us a call, shoot us a text, send us an email, however you want to get a hold of us. We got your back when moving to the Portland Metro. So, let's jump into this podcast. I'm, um, I'm going to start out by telling you I'm pretty optimistic. <laughs> I'm a little concerned, but I'm optimistic. I think we are actually in an incredible period of time right now. Mortgage applications the last week of January were at their highest level in six years. Uh, Our order count in WFG, January over January, up 61% this January over last January, up 39% this January over December. Now, a lot of that's refinances, but there's a lot of additional sales in there also. So we're seeing something happening. There's a little bit of activity. There's a really engagement going on. People are actually starting to look to buy a home. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting. And I'll give you a lot of data on this as we go down the road here. Um, We do have some concerns. I'll I'll go over those. But I think overall what I want to leave you with today is the first six months of this year are going to be good. After that, who the hell knows? (laughs) Is that pretty honest? (laughs) All right. So we are in the longest expansion in history. Uh, One of the things that started happening last year, things started slowing down, manufacturing slowed down, business spending started contracting, job openings declined. Now, interestingly enough, job openings went up dramatically in January. Or excuse me, employment went up dramatically in January. Uh, Beat all sorts of expectations. So maybe that's changed a little bit. International health concerns. I'm going to show you a slide in here about four virus scares so far in the 2000s. I've heard of SARS. There's actually been four instances, and I'll show you the impact of them. Hopefully, that'll give you some context about what to expect with the the coronavirus. Uh, However, households still spending, that is lowered rates. Talk a little bit about the repo market. Everybody remember what happened in September with the repo market? Uncle Pat just about passed out. The repo market, in the end of July 2007, the repo market did exactly the same thing. And that was the kind of the early bell on the crash. This time, the Fed reacted very, very aggressively. And I think we're going to get by it OK. Um, 
global contraction has paused. It's actually starting to see some pickup. The thing in China with the virus is a concern because China is the largest emerging market and it does have a big impact on global trade. So we've seen some shutdown there. The global market was really starting to re-energize and starting to grow again. I still think it'll be okay, but it'll be a little bit slower than we thought maybe a month ago. In the balance of trade war, we don't need any more trade wars. This is not a political comment. There is no historical evidence that tariffs have ever worked, period, all right? Uh, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or indifferent, tariffs as an economic policy are not productive and they don't do anything. So I hope this kind of fades into the background. Agribusiness, we have a problem in the United States. We have a section of the United States that is broke and going under. That's the Midwest. Fortunately, nobody lives there. <laughs> I lived there. I grew up there. I, uh, I always say it was a great place to grow up and a better place to leave. Um, that's a little unfortunate, but we do have a problem in the Midwest. I'll detail it a little bit, but agribusiness is really deep in debt and having a hard time. So I don't think that gets the kind of attention it should in the national media. Between the shale oil industry and the agribusiness industry, you have a great swath in the Midwest that's going to have a big, big problem in the next couple of years. We'll see what happens there. Emerging market growth, if that continues, is a good thing. Some of you heard me speak before. Real quickly, 40%, 40% of everything made in the world is made by U.S. corporations and half of it's made overseas. We are totally dependent on the growth of the world. If the world expands, if the world economy expands, things are good here. If it doesn't, things are bad here. Globalization has already happened. We are in a global economy and the U.S. corporations own it, right? So if the emerging markets expand, things are good. If they contract, then it gets a little worrisome. It does look like it's expanding, it's gonna expand. So right now we're looking at stabilization with a small s. Um, Q3, Q3 GDP was 2.1, Q4 was 2.1. Um, most projections you see right now have uh, 2020 coming in around 2.0, 2021 at 1.9, uh, 2022 at 1.8. Fairly slow but steady growth, and not that much under where it should be, to be honest with you. Europe's a question. Uh, Germany's teetering on a recession. So is Italy. Um, you have some problems. You know, the Brexit thing is still being worked out. Uh, if Europe, uh, and Europe is one of our biggest, well, put it this way, it's where our corporations make most of their money. So we don't want Europe to have too bad a problem. Uh, China high growth GDP, uh, China's GDP growth is uh, basically is going to slow down big time. I say here 6% in 2019, 5.6 in 2020. Personally, I'll be very surprised if it hits 5.6 in 2020. Uh, they've got a lot of issues. I'll show you some of the underlying issues you don't hear a lot about. And 2020, okay, depending on. Well, uh, it's gonna depend on a lot of things. One real quick comment so that I don't forget. It's an election year. And people say, what does that mean? I cannot personally, and I've spent a lot of time at this, I cannot find any evidence that an election year affects the economy one way or the other. It depends on all the other circumstances. One thing that does happen in an election year, though it happens every single time, is about three months before the actual election date, anxiety starts rising, okay? So mark my words on this. If consumer confidence is still high in June and July, it'll be fine. Okay, we won't see any slowdown. If consumer confidence goes down before June or July, anxiety starts going up, the fall may slow down a little bit. Right. First six months of the year, Katie barred the door. It's gonna be really good. 
The next three months after that kind of depends on where we are. If consumers are confident, I think we'll withstand the anxiety. A lot of things to be determined on that, but there's no really way of saying where it's going to end up at this point in time. You've seen this slide many times. This is gross domestic product from 1995. Uh, you've heard me say this also if you've heard me speak before. If you do mean regression analysis on GDP growth since 1950, right now it should be about 2.2%. It has steadily declined over the years because we're a maturing economy. We're no longer an industrial growing economy. We're a consumer economy. Uh, a lot of things go in, and I'll show you something in a second. This is a little bit more detailed on a quarterly basis, and you notice that we had a down quarter in uh, early 2011, one late 2011, we had a down quarter in 2014. A recession is defined as two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, all right? So these are not recessions, these are just quarters of e negative economic growth. And you can see quarter by quarter our economic growth we are really a very mature economy. I doubt seriously that you're going to see too many times over 3%. Uh, I don't know why that number is tossed around so much because it's really pretty irrelevant and it's no longer consistent. One of the reasons potential labor force productivity and potential labor force have been declining since 1950. Again, mature economy. One other thing here. I say, anybody here have a hard time sleeping? All right. So Google GDP. Read up on how it's comprised, and you're going to go, oh my God, <laughs> this is silly. Uh, it is really a mismatch of a lot of things. Some of them very outdated. It's a lot of this is a lot of crap. Old. Uh, the only value it has is if we measure it the same way all the time, we can compare how we're doing, and that's really the purpose, right? It shows whether the economy is expanding or contracting. It doesn't show you how good the economy is. Here's a funny thing: if GDP didn't grow at all in the next year. We had zero economic growth. It kind of be still be pretty good, wouldn't it? So it becomes a political tool, right? GDP growth becomes a political tool. We talk about three percent. Three percent happens very rarely. Um, I think that we're probably going to be looking in, in 2020 at around two percent, and that's just fine. We'll have we'll have plenty of job openings. We'll have growth. We'll have expansion. Not overwhelming, but good solid economy. Uh, unemployment and underemployment, these are numbers I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Uh, the un unemployment, U U3, is at 3.5%. Now, one thing that happens here that doesn't get a lot of verbiage, too, is you know the amount of people participating in the labor pool changes. It's not always constant. Uh, we had the percentage of participation in the labor pool go way up in the uh, late 70s to the mid-90s because the divorce rate went up. Divorce rate comes down, the participation rate in the labor pool went down because the amount of single women looking for work went down as a percentage. So what we see when unemployment is really the percentage of people acting, actually looking for a job that haven't found one. Underemployment, people not working 40 hours in the wrong job, so forth. But that's low also. Both those numbers are outstanding. Here's prime age in the, in the labor force that actually employed. Very, very good. These are good numbers. Here's payroll gains for the last uh, 10 years. You can see 2019 uh, through 11 months, payroll gains were pretty much steady with uh, earlier on in the, in the recovery. But if you look at 2019 by job, job growth by sector, education and health services were the big winners in 2019. Business services, leisure and hospitality, construction, trade, and then all the way down to mining and logging was actually negative. So asset value of the American consumer, or the wealth of the American consumer has gone up dramatically. It's about 110, uh, net worth is about $110 trillion right now. Not evenly distributed, and uh, 
you know, it, it really is made up of a lot of different things, but $110 trillion, you can see uh, during when the recession was over, it was about $55 trillion. So we've doubled our net worth as a country in the last 10 years. Again, not equally distributed. And I'm gonna make a point of, out of income inequality today because it affects our business, right? We need people, we, we need a middle class. You and I need a middle class in order to make a good living. We need people coming into the middle class, right? So this is not a political statement, it's simply, it's greed. Uncle Pat's greedy, he wants more money. So I want more middle class people buying a home. Anyway, so homeowner equity is kind of good. It's almost $16 trillion. So it's really gone up from the, here's when the bubble burst, here's a recession, and here's homeowner equity today. So the average consumer that owns a home has done very, very well. Average home last year uh, sold in 2019, I think the average profit was 65,000, which is pretty darn good, right? So I, you know, maybe some of you heard me talk about Robert Schiller before. He actually thinks homeownership is a waste of money. Uh, I'm not quite sure how he gets there. I actually had an argument with him one time about it. He said, well, 3.6% percent that. And I said, yeah, but Dr. Schiller, how many consumers could borrow five times the down payment to buy an asset? You know, you're leveraging it five to one. And so if you do that, it's about 14.5% return on your money. Oh, well, that's better than 3.6. Anyway, let's <laughs> move on. Uh, consumer confidence, that's uh, consumer confidence and consumer sentiment. You've heard me say this one before, too. Consumer confidence is immediate. The American consumer is actually pretty darn confident. And actually, this is, uh, is 131.6 in January. It's very high. Consumer sentiment, about 99.8. Uh, sentiment's more longer, too, in view. Both of these numbers are good, good, solid numbers. They, uh, consumer confidence stays there. Uh, run up to the election won't cause a slowdown in our business. Consumer confidence stay high, stays high. What should we be worried about? Well, for starters, you can never predict anything. And I, I love this slide because the Wall Street Journal has a panel of 55 economists, and these are all very bright, highly educated people. And they always ask these people, what do you think is gonna happen? So at the beginning of last year, January 2019, they asked these 55 economists, where do you think the 10-year bill will be at the end of the year? And the reason for that, in part, relates to us, is mortgage rates are always one and a half to two percent above the 10-year bill, right? So they said, where's the 10-year bill gonna be at the end of the year? So here's 55 economist projections. The uh, most pessimistic said it's gonna be about 4.2%. Uh, five of them thought it was gonna be stay even or maybe go down just a fraction. And you notice that the actual yield goes off the graph right here, it's 1.6% today. These are 55 of the brightest economists in America. They got it really close, didn't they? <laughs> There's a real lesson there. It's very, very hard to predict anything. There's too many variables, too many factors involved. Uh, I will tell you this, rates will stay down this year. Interest rates are gonna start going up next year. I'll try to explain why I think that. Uh, I don't think they're gonna peak or go up uh, real quick. In fact, I'd be willing to bet right now that the Fed will lower rates one more time this year. So it is a good time to be in our job, right? Things are going our way right now. All right, potential to cause a recession, the trade war, uh, global slowdown, rising interest rates, the debt wall, my favorite topic. Why growth will be slower in the next 12 months, impact from tariffs, drop off in corporate earnings, corporate debt bubble. Um, kind of fun to look at the uncertainty indexes. I know you're saying this guy does not have a life. <laughs> so, uh, I follow the uncertainty indexes to try to get an idea of how, how big the anxiety is out there. So here's one, the US Economic Policy Uncertainty Index. Uh, going back to 2013, and uh, it spikes every time there's something with the trade war. 
Uh, here's the World Uncertainty Index, and uh, that kind of went up there towards the end of last year. World Trade Uncertainty Index. You know, you can, you can take these for what they're worth, but they do show that there is a lot of uncertainty, don't they? And they show there's a lot of anxiety. We'll see what happens. Why is trade so important? I made a comment about it, and I, I made a comment about globalization's already taken place, that, that we are in an environment where our corporate health is really dependent on the world, and to a large extent, then our economy. Uh, look at this right here. We got, uh, this, this was through halfway through last year, so it's a little bit dated. But corporations with more than 50% of the revenues inside the U.S. were making money. Corporations with 50% of the revenues outside the U.S. were losing money. And that is still going on because of the slowdown caused by the trade war. Now, China came out today and said that they were going to lower their tariffs as a part of the phase one trade deal. And uh, unfortunately, it was met with a lot of cynicism that it was nothing but a, but a fiscal move to uh, stimulate the Chinese economy. I, I, again, really hope we get rid of the tariffs. Um, and I do think if we don't have any more increases, we'll be okay. Uh, imports and exports, obviously we have a great trade deficit with China. This is in billions of dollars. We import about uh, 525 billion, we export about 150 billion. So we have a great discrepancy with China, but interestingly enough, our biggest proportional uh, lack of balance with any country is Ireland. We, uh, we import about five times from Ireland what they buy from us, so we ought to lock them out. <laughs> Sorry, my first name is Patrick. I better shut up here. Um, anyway, here's a breakdown with China. A lot of computer and electronic equipment, electrical equipment, so forth and so on. We export transportation equipment. This does not seem big here, the 5.9 billion in, in crops. But one thing that's happened here that's sort of scary. Actually, I'll wait to show you the slide. And then, right here. Sorry, I didn't know it was the next slide. U.S. exports of soybeans to China. Well, here's when we did the uh, tariffs, and here's what happened to soybeans. And you look at net farm income. It was depressed anyway before the tariff situation. Net farm income was at a low point even before the tariffs, and we lost the soybean market. And if you spend any time in the Midwest, a lot of uh, farmers converted, a lot of agribusiness converted to soybeans because this was a big market, proportionately a very big market. Now we've, uh, even though China's agreed to start importing some of our soybeans, they've replaced our farmer's product with other countries' products. It's going to be hard to get that back. So that's, that scares me, plus the fact that agribusiness was not doing too well before that. Uh, looking at exports to China and Chinese, so this is the, the trade war has kind of uh, cut the imports and the exports to China. Uh, everywhere else, you know, the Chinese uh, trade balance went down a little bit because of the the trade war, but everywhere else has gone up. And look at the trade deficit with the European Union. Uh, we import way more from the European Union than we export to the European Union. And we, uh, we make a lot of money. Our corporations make a lot of money off of Europe. Uh, so percentage of Europe, 54.1% of our corporate profits, like external overseas corporate profits were from Europe. So that's a really big market for us. So. I talk about the trade thing and I say it has no impact and it really hasn't made a difference. And one of the things that bothers me is you always hear about the trade deficit, but you never hear about the investment surplus. And what happens, folks, and it has, it has all along, going back to 1985 when we started regularly uh, running a trade deficit, <coughs> excuse me, we have a very consistent offsetting 
capital accounts inflow. So we buy stuff from countries, they take that money and turn around and buy our T-bills, our municipal bonds, our, uh, all our financial instruments. And that keeps our rates low, doesn't it? Rates have gone down steadily since 1980. And the reason they've gone down is globalization. We have all this money coming back in buying our financial instruments that offsets 95% of the trade imbalance. And does it track pretty accurately with the trade imbalance? Yeah. There is a direct benefit to us keeping our rates low, our cost of living low. And, and, and maybe I'm missing something, but it's a pretty darn good deal. You know, so I don't, I, I don't get upset about this because we get the money back. We get the money back buying. How do we finance these ridiculous deficits that have such low rates? Foreign money coming in. You can see giant Japan are two of the biggest buyers of the Treasury bill. There's other foreign holders of the Treasury bills. The biggest single buyer of the Treasury bill, of course, is the Fed. Anyway, <coughs> so there's about 16 trillion in uh, Treasury bills outside. Foreigners have kind of stopped buying, you know, at about the uh, six billion or six trillion mark right here. We'll see what happens going forward. Will interest rates rise? Going back to 1980, interest rates have come down very steadily. And the reason that it's been very pronounced is uh, not only do we get the benefit of that money coming in and buying our financial instruments, we get the benefit of goods deflation. The cost of goods has gone down for us. If you look at this slide here, service price inflation from 2000, actually 2010, this is the cost of wage and salaries. They've gone up. Now, it's starting to accelerate a little bit. The bottom one-third is up over 4% now. So you're starting to see some growth here. But look at this. Goods price inflation was actually deflationary from 2013 all the way through 2018. In other words, the cost of goods went down. The cost of goods to us went down because we import things that are made cheaper elsewhere. Now, we've had some consumer price changes. We've seen a little bit of pickup from energy and other things. Here's the things that are more expensive and more affordable going back to 1998. So things that are more expensive, hospital services, college tuition, college textbooks, medical care, average hours and wages up a little bit, housing and food up just a little bit. Less expensive, new cars, household furnishings, clothing, cell phone services, computer software, toys and TVs. I mean, you buy a flat screen TV today, it's cheap. It is, I mean, I can, I can remember buying a 21-inch black and white. It was about the size of my car. And, uh, it was more expensive than this last giant flat-screen TV I bought. I mean, we have benefited greatly from that. So Federal Reserve didn't do some rate cuts here. They were raising rates pretty steady, and then they backed it off here a little bit. They also started buying assets. One of the things that happened with the, uh, with the repo rate popping is they stopped selling off their treasury bills and other financial assets, and they actually started buying things again. They were showing everybody that they were not going to sit idly by and watch the repo market go upside down. So their total asset purchases have gone up fairly dramatically. Here's the repo rate. So everybody know what a repo rate is? Anybody care? <laughs> Okay, banks loan each other money overnight, right? Because they will have, they will do something, but they will need money in order to, they will need to borrow money to offset something they've done the day before. So there's a lot of back and forth trading overnight between financial institutions to make sure that they have the assets and things are in balance. And this overnight trading, the typical rate runs between about two and a quarter to two and a half percent. 
Then all of a sudden, I think it was September 21st, I forget the exact day, repo rate popped up to five and a quarter percent. What does that say? That is saying that all of a sudden the financial system said, wait a minute, we have a problem, or got scared. They got scared by the uncertainty, they got scared by a lot of the things going on uh, internationally. Uh, and basically they said, well, I'm not gonna lend you any money unless you pay me a lot more. So the repo rate went up five. The last time this happened, the last week of July 2007. <coughs> so when this happened, uh, you know, I'm sitting down getting ready to kind of change my financial profile a little bit. And uh, the Fed reacted immediately. The Fed said, no, we're not gonna do this. You know, we're, we will stand 100% behind this. We're not gonna have any issues. Repo rent went back. We had a little bit of a spike there, a little bit there, but we're back down now. And the Fed is being very aggressive. So, fingers crossed they continue to be aggressive. We don't have a problem there. One of the things that's happened, though, is that the, because the Fed's lowering again, is that the value of the dollar has gone down, all right? The value of the dollar was very high when the Fed was raising the rate. They started lowering the rate again, the value of the dollar goes down. If the value of the dollar goes down, commodity prices go up. So that does have an impact, and over time, if it goes for a year, you'll start seeing it a little bit of inflation. Is a recession imminent? I mean, we had a lot of recessions. Um, this is just uh, how many recessions have you lived through as an adult? I'm a, I'm a little over seven, and uh, you know, recessions were, are pretty commonplace, to be honest with you. We had got absolutely devastated by the Great Recession, didn't we? And it just was hammered over our head. I bet you there's not a single person in this room that doesn't think about it regularly. I mean, and I'll show you some numbers here. The American consumer got it. The American consumer shaped up. Maybe the government doesn't understand, I don't know. <laughs> there are a few people that don't seem to get it. But the consumers have gotten it. But recessions, by and large, are not like that. Recessions happen fairly periodically. You can look at, how many people remember the uh, 1982 recession? Caused by, remember, remember the interest rates in the early 80s? That was fun, wasn't it? Well, the 82, now how about the 91 recession? Savings and loan crisis, oil price shock. Uh, the 2002, uh, 2002 recession, dot-com bubble burst. Each of those recessions was about a, you know, a couple quarters, then it recovered, it was not traumatic at all. This last recession was bad, you can see how bad here. This shows all the recessions since World War II, and then what happened in the three years after that recession. You can see uh, GDP growth. All the other recessions did better on GDP growth in the next three years after the recession. Here's the 2009 recession. It took us three years to get back to zero. You know, the 1949 recession, they were up almost 20% after three years. So GDP growth was really the slowest since the Great Depression after this last recession. Non-farm payroll growth, same thing. The most recent recession took a long time to even get started to re rebuilding payroll growth. The other recessions turned around fairly quickly. Unemployment rate, same thing. Unemployment rate stayed good. This great recession was, was bad, it was traumatic. And who got blamed for it? Yeah, real estate did, didn't it? I actually think it was more Wall Street than real estate, but we won't, won't spend too much time on that subject. I'm gonna tell you the next recession takes us off the, the center bullseye, okay? It'll no longer be real estate, it'll be corporate debt next time, all right? But this was a bad recession we went through. So things slowing down, people are getting a little bit worried about another one. You can see Eurozone slowing down, Germany, Japan, uh, manufacturing in the US and Europe, 
Last year really started slowing down. You know, about September, early September of last year, I, I was personally thinking we were looking at a recession. In fact, I bet some money on it. I paid the guy last night. <laughs> but I thought we were gonna have a recession because everything was slowing down. And you can see manufacturing purchasing, purchasing index, everything was slowing down. Um, German price adjusted GDP, they were 0.6%. China's industrial output really slowed down. Uh, bankruptcies in China went up, that's good. So a lot of things happened. Things started turning around late in the year. We started to see some evidence that we're gonna have emerging market growth. Um, the Davos uh, World Economic Forum talked very optimistically about emerging market growth. Now something happened here last week, or about 10 days ago, the coronavirus, right? A lot of you are seeing a lot of anxiety right now. Wall Street's recovered from it. You're seeing a lot of people say, how bad will it be? It will impact global growth, because it will impact Chinese growth. In fact, I'd, I'd probably be willing to bet that Chinese GDP this year would be about 5.3 or 5.4%. So down a long ways from what we thought was the norm at 10%, right? So how bad is it? How bad is the virus? So here are four viruses. This is hard for you to see, so I'll just go over it real quickly. Four viruses since 2000 have gotten basically the same amount of attention. The, uh, and I'm not trying to minute this. I feel very bad for people that are sick, and it, it just is tragic to see what happened. I'm not trying to minimize this. I'm trying to put it into perspective. So the SARS uh, impacted 17 countries. Um, Economic impact, China was a big thing. The S&P was down 14%. Mideast Respiratory Syndrome uh, impacted, well, globally, South Korea was the worst one. S&P was down 4%. Ebola virus impacted a lot of people. S&P was down 7%. The current coronavirus, uh, S&P was down 3%. So we've gone through this before. Um, it is scary, it is concerning, but the biggest issue is the unknown because how many cases of flu have we had in the United States this year? Well, I guess somewhere between 15 million and 19 million. Over 8,000 people have died from the flu in the United States in the last four months. And yet we are totally obsessed with this because it's the unknown and we do this, right? We always look at the unknown, we're always worried about the unknown. Put it into proportion. It is going to impact China's GDP. It's going to impact emerging market growth. I think it will still be positive, but it will be slower. Uh, it is going to have a, a, an effect of also keeping rates down this year. Birth rate in China has fallen quite dramatically. Now, here's an interesting thing that's happened. It's kind of fun to watch. Not fun to watch, interesting to watch. Uh, if you look at CEOs of big businesses, their confidence had tanked. Now it's back to 43 from, from about 32 up to 43 in December. Small business optimism has been going this way. Big business optimism has been going this way. Big businesses are tied to the global economy. Small businesses are tied to the local consumer. So we've had a real dichotomy in optimism and economic planning. Uh, S&P 500 growth. Actually, the S&P earnings, all four quarters last year, were down from the year, year earlier. They still made money, but in relationship to the year earlier, all four quarters, S&P earnings were down last year. So that's why the big companies, because global economy was slowing down, big companies got a little bit nervous. Capital expenditures dropping, uh, investment, if you look at this, can't be political, right? <laughs> Take a deep breath on. 
Uh, <laughs> the tax cut. Uh, the, the tax cut, you know, I, I think some of the rationale by people believed that thought the tax cut would result in investment and would spur the economy, and apparently it didn't happen because you see structure and equipment investment dropped dramatically uh, last year. The big savings and small investments, so here's where the people use the tax cut. These are all the major corporations by industry. Um, so the median change in S&P 500 companies uh, in investment, capital spending, basically down for most industry. Energy was up because energy, that's a good question. Anyway, energy was up. Materials were up a little bit. But you see bulk of the industries in the S&P 500 actually didn't take that money and invest it, didn't do capital expenditures. Uh, manufacturing survey did turn up at the end of the year, which is good to see. Composite PMI, this is Purchasing Managers Index. This is an index that people follow to see what companies are buying with the intention of manufacturing. So if they're gonna go manufacture something, they buy the materials first, and that's what this tracks. And actually, this started turning up at the end of last year, which was really, really good to see. This was a little disconcerting. I mean, what you're looking at here is Europe and the US, but the downward trend, it, it actually has gone up again since this one. This was slightly dated. So. It's good to see a PMI go up. Now, here's the small business optimism compared to the big business optimism. It's like we're living in two different worlds. Small business optimism up, up because consumers have been very, very positive. My favorite uh, indicator is the Goldman Sachs current activity indicator. It is done in a very logical, rational way. And uh, they are showing January at about 1.9. Now, this is kind of disconcerting too, but look at the pop up here in January. So. I tend to think that this is good, solid indication that things are, things are going to go our way here. I'm going to go fast through debt. <laughs> we just had our fifth grandchild the day before yesterday, and I think about my grandkids every time I look at the federal deficit. Uh, is it going to impact you and I in the next year or two or even three or four years? Probably not. Ten years from now, it's going to be a huge problem. I mean, gigantic. Right? And unfortunately, it's going to impact our kids and our grandkids. Um, you can see that we've, uh, we've spent more than we've taken in for a long time, except under Clinton, and then we had the Bush tax cut, and we had a McNutt tax cut there. So federal, uh, all, well, this, excuse me, this is all kinds of formal debt, about $70 trillion of all kinds of formal debt. Gross public debt is a little over $25 trillion. That's the federal government and, and state governments. And then here's the federal deficit. So you look at this. Here was the great, the, the great uh, recession, right? And this, we did, remember the $850 billion bailout bill that was passed and all this stuff that happened? And then we had, you know, tax, tax revenues were down because we went into a great recession. And then we stimulated with 850. So we ran a huge deficit there for a couple years. And, uh, Here's where we're going to be for the next 10 years, right at $1 trillion a year federal deficit. This is a good economy, and we ran a $1 trillion federal deficit. Now, the question I have, and I, I, I hate it when people tell me, oh, Pat, you worry too much. Um, the question I have is how long can we go at a trillion dollar deficit before people start wondering if they want to buy our T-bills anymore, right? Or are they going to buy our T-bills for a 10-year T-bill at 1.6%? If we have a trillion dollar deficit for 10 years, no, they're not. They're gonna buy it for about three or 4%, we put mortgage rates back up about 
saying, we will pay for this if it continues. I'm just telling you straight up, and, and how long it takes before that happens, I bet you less than 10 years. Because if I'm sitting there and I've got a lot of money to invest and I look at a country that's running a trillion dollar deficit in a good time, do, does my faith go up? And then I go, wait a minute, <laughs> it's not too smart, so we'll see. So if you look over a long period of time, here's World War II. We went deeply in the hole to finance World War II. Sorry, I get really disgusted with this. Now, household debt. Okay, here's business debt, and here's household debt as a percentage of gross domestic product. The American consumer is smarter than the government or corporations. To tell you straight up, the American consumer has deleveraged dramatically. Corporations and the government have gone through the roof because interest rates are low. Hey, let the good times roll, right? Corporate debt up 66% since the downturn was almost a little, it was a little bit actually, it's probably about 63%. So it was a little over $6 trillion in corporate debt at the downturn. We're at $10 trillion in corporate debt today, 10 years later. And you say corporate debt is a share of GDP, it's up to 47%. And then issuance of leveraged loans. Okay, so this, uh, this is globally. The blue is the United States, the red is non-US issuers of, of leveraged loans. You know what leveraged loans are? That's when you already have a loan on something, you go back and get another loan on it. That's a leveraged loan. And uh, we did about 700 billion in leveraged loans last year. Uh, share loans of leveraged loans that are covenant light with no restrictions. You or I go to the bank and borrow money, they have a restriction on what we can do with that asset, right? We can't sell that asset without telling them. We can't mortgage it again without telling them. I mean, those are called covenants, right? Well, covenant-like loans now, uh, of all those leveraged loans, about 75% of them have no restrictions on them. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Does this remind you of anything? Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, I'm on a, a board of a fairly large reinsurance company, and uh, we, we do a CLO every quarter, and then we do a lot of things, and we've been watching the rating agencies and the rating agencies uh, caused us, in our industry, a lot of pain last time. Uh, and, of course, they learned their lesson, didn't they? <laughs> it is still issuer paid. In other words, the entity making the loan is the one that pays the rating agency for the rating. Right? And if you look at this, this is the red is speculative grade, the black is triple B. So the way rating agencies work, you've got investment grade, which is triple B, A, double A, triple A, you know, mostly triple B and A. Those are investment grade. Below triple B is speculative. And that is a, that is a, uh, a line in the sand between a loan that gets a very good rate and one you have to pay up because there's risk. So if you go back to 2004 all the way through to about 2013, <coughs> The percentage of speculative grade loans and triple B loans ran hand in hand. And then all of a sudden, everybody got investment grade. I, I got I just, I am dumbfounded by this personally. I don't understand it. Uh, we did a little research at this reinsurance company, and we found that ratings were being given on new debt based on the last rating. There was no new investigations. There was no new reviews or anything. So what you're seeing happening here with corporate debt is what happened to real estate back in 2004 to six. Same kind of thing where ratings really don't matter. They matter, but they are not being done. So one thing that's happened because rates are so low that 
the corporate interest payments to cash flow are very very low, and so corporate debt to cash flow is a little bit higher. But corporations have got away with, with having so much debt because interest rates are so low. And you can see risky firms, ratio of interest expense to earnings. Risky firms is about 17%. All firms is clear down to about 8%. So longer rates are low, what's the problem? Anybody here think that rates will ever go up again? I do. <laughs> I will tell you, you have a 1.5% increase in rates, and this is a house of cards. It'll be really interesting to see how they react to it. S&P, the big companies are fine. The S&P 500 is fine. Don't see any problem there. It's really the smaller companies. I mentioned CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, structured exactly like collateralized debt obligations were. That was the, that was the entity on Wall Street that collapsed with the mortgages in it. Collateralized loan obligations are built the same way with corporate debt. And you can see that uh, the amount of collateralized loan obligations actually passed where we peaked on collateralized debt obligations last year. There's about 700 billion right now in collateralized loan obligations. The non-investment grade ones are getting 9.3% return. Uh, then you can see the double B, the non-investment grade CLOs, uh, they all are having a bit of a problem. This is a, really a very quiet conversation that's being had now because there's a lot of these collateralized loan obligations that aren't working. And uh, it, it kind of reminds some people of what we saw back in 2009. So we'll see what happens on that. Total amount of global negative uh, yielding debt, about 12, well, it's actually down to about $10.5 trillion. Okay, here's fun. So, Pat, why are you so worried? American corporations do very, very well. Well, they do. Some of them do really well. Some don't even make money. Look at this slide. What you're looking at here in the dark is very negative corporations with that lost money. These are black, blue ones are corporations that lost money, but not as much. In total, 43% uh, of all corp publicly traded companies lost money last year. <laughs> the looks on your faces, yeah, that can't be right. Oh, it is. It is. Over 40%, there's 3,500 publicly traded companies in the U.S. 3,500. Over 40% of them didn't make money last year. Hey, what's the problem? So the Russell 2000, you heard of the Russell 2000 index? 33% of the Russell 2000 companies didn't make money last year. Now the big companies, S&P 500, only about 1.5% of them lost money last year. It's the small companies, it's the oil and energy companies, and it's the tech companies. And it is a house of cards. Corporate debt is out of control. Uh, here is a... You know what an initial public offering, an IPO? So if you go back and you look at the dot-com bubble, so proportion of US IPOs that are loss-making, at the peak of the dot-com bubble, about 77% of all IPOs weren't making money. Oh, well, why would that stop us? All right, share of CapEx accounted by unprofitable firms. So look at this because this shows how many companies are actually spending money that benefits the economy that aren't making money. You're about 10% of them. Now this is interesting, and this all this means is we haven't had a bubble burst. This is the probability of surviving to the next year conditioned on having lost money in consecutive prior years. So nobody, very few people are going out of business. 85% could have lost money for 10 years and they're still going because rates are so low and you can get more, more loans, right? I am trying to tell you this is a house of cards. <laughs> And it is in the corporate debt world, not in the real estate world. 
when that when this house of card when this house of cards collapses, it's going to hurt energy companies, specifically shale oil companies, and it's going to hurt tech. There's a lot of the Midwest that's going to have a problem. San Francisco is going to have a problem. Part of Seattle, a little bit of LA, will have a very minor impact here at all. So it's going to really hurt a certain segment of the corporate world. It's not going to hurt real estate. And then all of a sudden, it won't, won't be us that was the problem with the last recession, which I'm kind of anxious to see. All right. So uh, stock index, you know, so here's the energy companies and the stock index. Here's the S&P 500. I mean, this, I'm beating this to death. North American oil and gas debt maturities, 2022. If nothing happens between now and 2022, there will be a recession in 2022. They will not be able to refinance this because I'll guarantee you by 2022, interest rates will be up about 1%. And they're not going to be able to refinance this. So if nothing happens before 2022, I think that's when you have a recession. Again, it won't bother us very much at all. It'll be like those other recessions we were talking about. No big deal. Um, global private capital, just real quickly, I've been very involved in private equity. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I'm going to be too honest with you. Um, there's times I sit in rooms with a, a table full of uh, Ivy League MBAs who don't know anything about anything. And I mean, it is scary, right? Uh, and there's a real, uh, the Economist Magazine ran an article in this latest edition about uh, how there's a preference growing for private capital because you don't have the same reporting concerns you have in public, at a public company. So you look at the growth of private capital. I mean, six, about $6.7 trillion worth of private capital now. Total, totally operating by people that never run the business. Anyway, back to the consumer. Consumer's doing real well. Here's mortgage debt. Two things of the consumer that have gone up, obviously student loans and auto loans. Look at the average FICO score. I mean, this is incredible. The average FICO score for the average American has gone from about 687 in 2010 to uh, 707. That's fantastic. The American consumer has it together. They actually think about things before they spend their money. Uh, debt share by product type and age, and you can go like the 18 to 29 years olds have a high percentage of college loan debt, uh, some mortgage debt, and then the percentage of the student loan debt goes down dramatically as you get older. Mortgage debt becomes a mainstay from 40 through 70. Uh, <clears throat> the household uh, household income growth versus uh, expenses is kind of interesting to watch. You know, this is household income. It's gone up, not, but not dramatically since 2008. Housing has ran a little further ahead, although the, the spread has been pretty steady the last couple of years between the two. Um, medical's gone up, and then college costs have gone up. Share of people who have negative equity when trading in vehicles. This, I, I don't know why I'm showing you this. I don't mean to waste your time, but I was stunned by this. Almost 33% or 34% of everybody that trades in a car that had a loan on it has negative equity. The car's not worth as much as existing loan. Anybody here in the automobile industry? All you gotta be able to do is walk in and sign your name and get a loan. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I know, I'm, I'm telling you this because I'm gonna be straight up with you. We're in this industry that paid its dues, got its act together, and is running very, very well. And you look around, you go, my God. I mean, it's, uh, the automobile industry, a lot of the uh, non-profitable corporate sectors, it's crazy. We're not the problem anymore, we're not. 
I mean, we're actually running a pretty good operation in, in real estate. Auto loans, credit cards, personal loans, just growth. And you can see a percent 90 days delinquent. <clears throat> Here's mortgage debt. It's back to where it was in the early, uh, early 2000s. Home equity is back, but well, not quite as low, but it's come down. Auto loans, are, they've gone up a little bit. And student loans are up. Credit cards are actually lower than they were in the early 80s. So it's really auto loans and, and student loans are the problem. Farm sector debt, 415.7 billion. I had to throw that in, sorry. Okay, long-term concerns. I'll pick it up a little bit. Impact of slowdown in China, European cohesion. <coughs> we just had the Brexit, so. Mortgage finance system, deficit spending, income inequality, cost of healthcare, emerging markets, climate change. These are all long-term concerns, worth giving just a couple of minutes to real quickly. You can see the Chinese uh, real GDP in China. Look at working age population in China. It's shrinking. They had a single child policy for a long time. The working age population is not growing, it's shrinking in China. Now, another issue there in about, you, know, you get a little argument about people how long, but somewhere between eight to 12 years from now, there'll be over 500 million people over 65 years old in China. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Uh, you can see annual corporate bond issuance here, and this is, uh, in China, and they really, they're really leveraging up. And this is a tourist dollars going outside of China, and really what happens is they're taking money out of China and putting it somewhere else. And they spent, and this is 2017, they spent $100 billion more in tourism than we did. Okay, so the finance system, mortgage finance system, I was really pleased to see that the QM patch is gonna be extended indefinitely. Uh, it was supposed to expire Q1 of next year, and that would have uh, that would have been a problem because you would, the idea of uh, you know had to have 43% income to loan or less uh, that would have probably been lowered significantly. Uh, qualifying mortgages would have been harder to get. It would have, we do not have a good mortgage system right now. It would have gone to hell in a handbasket if that had happened. Uh, there are there is a lot of talk about getting the GSEs out of conservatorship. Uh, you may be, I'm sure you're aware of this, but the Fed, Freddie and Fannie don't really exist. They're part of the U.S. Treasury now, have been for 10 years. The U.S. Treasury built, bailed them out. The U.S. Treasury put $194 billion into those companies to bail them out during the downturn. They've collected $325 billion so far. And don't want to give them up because it's a nice little cash cow, right? Uh, but I think you're going to see something happen in the next couple of years here. Um, one thing that i just show you on this slide real quickly, this is back when Wall Street was securitizing mortgages. You're starting to see a little bit of it in Wall Street now on, on high-end mortgages and on some non-qualifying mortgages. Um, I would like to see, I would really like to see an independent private securitization market redevelop, but redevelop in a rational way, right? Uh, and there are firms looking at it. Uh, Goldman Sachs, I've actually had a couple of meetings with Goldman Sachs, and they want to do it, but they, at the rates right now for mortgages, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's really hard to securitize mortgages when you get, you get three and a half, three 3.6%. So we'll see what happens here. I'm not less worried about this than I was a few months ago, but long-term, something has to be done. Uh, how many people here were in the business when mortgages were done by SNLs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we have gone through changes in our lifetime, and we'll see more of them. There's no immediate problem here, is guess what I'm trying to say, but we will see some changes. 
Fannie and Freddie did start allowing 3% down payments, and that picked up pretty dramatically. That's helped a lot. Uh, Federal Reserve holdings of mortgage-backed securities, they started to sell them off. They've stopped doing that. Um, this, is, this is actually out of date. This is Fannie's, Fannie's projection showing actual 2016, 17, 18, almost actual 19 and projections for 2020. I'm here to tell you that this is going to be a pretty good year. It could be a better year than we anticipated, both for resale and refi. It's going to be a good year. And then, uh, so bank holdings and foreclosed loans, that's, banks are back to where they were. I'm sorry I keep ranting about the tax cut. Here's a, here's a percentage of the federal budget that is spent servicing the debt. And you can see, uh, you go back uh, when the downturn got high, we're back up there now. Well, here's a percentage, I think, actually, we're clear back to where we were in the 80s in cost of federal debt. How about income inequality? I, I got to show you this slide, and you, you got the ability to download this and look at it. Uh, this is very disturbing. It's disturbing to me because it's going to impact our business. It's going to impact our business because we're not creating a middle class anymore. Uh, real quickly, 1962-2018, bottom 50% of Americans, total wealth was $3,528 in 1962. 2018, it was $5,156. Bottom 50% of Americans, net worth went from $3,500 to $5,100. Their taxes went up. Next 40%, <coughs> net worth increased from $73,000 to $259,000. Their taxes went up. Right? And if you look down here, the top one-tenth of a percent from 30.9 million to 349 million, the taxes went from 53.6 to 29.4. There is a disconnect here that is going to be dangerous for us law. I'm, I'm, I'm par pardon me for editorializing in a social manner, but it is scary to me what this impact of this will be. We are disenfranchising the bottom 90% of Americans. They're paying the same effective tax rate or higher. They're not making any money and uh, rich people are getting richer. Top 1% uh, income, 1975, a little over 10%. Today it's 20%. Top one-tenth of a percent is almost 9% of all income. But that was only 2015, it's higher now. Uh, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is the top one-tenth of a percent, up over 400% since 1980. The rest of the top 1% up about 175%. Here's real eco economic growth from 1980 to today. So, the top 10% have done as well as the economy or slightly better. Everybody in the bottom 90% have done less well than the economy as a whole since 1980. The bottom 50% income has grown one third of what the economy has grown since 1980. Um, I don't know where people are going to be buying, who's going to be buying homes and doing starter homes in 10 years. I don't. I, this has got to change. We're, we're killing our middle class. And, Look at, I, uh, I'm an Eisenhower Republican. I'm not, this is not an editorial, this is not a political editorial. I very much believe that we are destroying the middle class with what, how we've done this, so hopefully this changes. You can see wealth for the bottom 50% of Americans, there's asset liabilities. So the wealth of the bottom 50% of the United States in 2002 is bigger than it is today. It was bigger than it is today. So the bottom 50% of Americans are worth less now than they were 18 years ago. All right, there is some wage increases. The bottom one-third is up over 4%. Let's hope that continues. Let's hope that continues. Personal income, you can see, and this is just a quick snapshot. This is Q2 to Q3 of last year, just to see 
to show you basically that income changes by state uh, and changes over time. But you can see we increased 3.8% in Oregon. Midwest went up, I don't know what caused that, that particular quarter to quarter, but you can see how it varies. It varies dramatically state to state. But here's healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP. Here's the United States. Here's uh, European and Japan countries. Look at this. This is the pharmaceutical spending, United States, Canada, France, all the other OECD countries. And this is my favorite graph. Uh, this shows, this compares OECD. Okay, for the people that can't sleep and, you, and you, you Google things, you Google OECD, it's the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. There's 34 advanced economies that share economic information. And one of the things they share, they share a lot of statistical information on health, longevity, and all that, cost. And you can see in 1970, the 10 biggest OECD countries outside of the United States and the United States both had life expectancies of about 71 years. Those 10 other big countries spent a little over 4% of their GDP on health. We spent a little over 6% of our GDP. Go forward, and here you are in 2016, those 10 OECD countries, average life expectancy of 82 years. We have an life, average life expectancy of 78.6. They're spending an average of about 11% of their GDP, and we're spending over 17%. So people go, well, yeah, Pat, but, you know, let me tell you where our healthcare system came from in this country real quickly. So in 1942, as a result of the Pearl Harbor declaring war, the government decided that they would enact a law that said you couldn't use financial incentives, incentives to hire people from competing companies because they didn't want the production disrupted. They didn't want the supply chain disrupted by companies hiring everybody else's people, right? So they said you can't use financial incentives to hire your competitors' people. So Kaiser or Kaiser Shipyard came up with the idea of offering health care. Now you had to be employed, you could have no pre-existing conditions, but you used health care to hire people. And that is our healthcare system in the United States, a workaround of the 1942 law. And yet it gets defended. Uh, personally, I like Germany. Germany has, you could either have a single payer system where you can opt out and buy as much insurance as you want. You can have it both ways. There's no reason we can't do it both ways. So, one man's opinion. All right, rise of emerging markets, real quickly here. You go back to 1992, the 34 advanced economies were about uh, 58% of the world's economy. The 100 and, gotta get this right, 150 other emerging markets were 42%. Today it's just the opposite. When I talk about the emerging market being really important, emerging markets expand, we'll do fine. They contract, we'll slow down, right? They are 60%, over 60% of the world economy, and our corporations live off. Uh, extreme weather conditions, uh, one of the things that came out of Davos also was a real concern about uh, climate change. And you have, uh, talking about private equity, you have a couple of private equity companies now that will not invest in co companies that have disproportionate carbon footprints. So you're starting to see some economics around, around uh, weather events and around that. So housing, if nothing else out of today's presentation, look at this slide. Look at this. Housing starts, monthly housing starts. 1.6 million in December. This high, back to 2006 levels. Look at this spike in housing starts. I've been waiting a long time and I thought this was gonna go like this for another 10 years. 
We had in December housing starts at a 1.6 million annual rate. This is back to normal. Finally, we're having a normal housing start. Now, the interesting thing about it, two companies, Lennar, about 40% of all the homes that Lennar's building now are starter homes, and about 33% of all the homes Pulte is, is, are building nationally are starter homes. We're finally getting some starter homes. So we're seeing some new construction, some starter homes. How many people here worry about inventory? <laughs> Every one of you, right? So we're finally starting to see some construction and some starter homes, and uh, this is, this is, this made me excited. I mean, this is the first sign I've seen that we're going to get inventory back. Uh, and this is a little bit, this is right before that last statistic. It had gone up a little bit, but nothing like 2006. Now we're right here. 1.6 right here. So it's really picked up. Uh, contributions of uh, real estate to GDP have been really bad since this recovery because real estate hasn't recovered. But if you look on a, uh, if you compare each November with the prior November, the number of housing sold. I mean, you tend to look at statistics that go like this, but if you just pick one month out each of the uh, last six years, you can see that the sales have gone up steady, not as much as we'd want. Home ownership, home ownership rate is 65%. Again, that is dwelling units occupied by the owner of both single family and multifamily. We built a lot of multifamily, so consequently it went down, now it's going back up. This is an exciting slide, especially for those of you here that are going to be working in this business you know, 10 years from now, even five or six years from now. You have a great population group right here coming in. This is the actual population today by age group. And then this is, uh, this is what's going to happen over the next decade. You're going to see this population right here from, 19, from 30 years of age to about 55 years of age, a great surge of population in that age group. And us old people over here. But this is going to create a lot of demand, a lot of demand. And then you can see it here, the baby boomers, millennials, this is, this is the surge coming right here. And then looking at its household formation, over the next five years, about 5.1 million plus formation between 30 to 50 years of age. And then a big surge in old people. What's going on there? <laughs> Well, what's happening here, and this is very interesting to me, um, is that we're not seeing, we're seeing a, a, we're seeing a change in behavior that I don't think was fully anticipated. And that is, instead of moving into a retirement home, people are downsizing, right? They don't want to give up their three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath ranch home and move to a retirement home. They would like to go someplace, maybe it's a two-bedroom or not a lot or something, but they want to downsize. They don't want to go live in a big complex. So there is going to be a lot of business in that segment, right? It's got, instead of move up, it's move down. But a lot of that's going to happen. All right, so Midwest, uh, here's population by, the South has been the big gainer in population since the downturn, the West quite a bit, Northeast and, um, and mid Midwest not so much. Housing demand, still, still kind of the same things driving it. Tired of current home, you know, getting married, moving in with a partner, planning to increase family size. You know, socially there was a lot of commentary, or there's a lot of commentary about being a social change, but there really hasn't been any. It's more about economically driven than any social change. And then uh, ownership rate, this went down, started back up. We'll see what happens on that. I think it'll return to normal over time. And the Realtors Confidence Index you know, is still pretty good. 
Good time to buy a home, 63%. Good time to sell a home, 74%. Home purchase sediment. We had that. We had a little problem there, and then the rates went down and came back. So things are pretty good. Looking at characteristic of ownership, um, you can see this: owner occupied 64%, apartment rental 15%, duplexes, triplexes 7%, single family residential uh, rental has gone up. It's 14% now. Mortgage and positive equity 39%, home mortgage 23%. Mortgage availability though is still below where it was, you know, back in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, it's getting better, but it's still pretty, pretty, pretty weak. 20% uh, down payment, you know, that was a stand, that was a, a articulated standard, but it's really not. Uh, about 75% of all home buyers put down less than 20% last year. Now this is interesting. This sort of surprised me looking at this because I had assumed <clears throat> that first-time buyer age had gone up, median age for first-time buyers had gone up dramatically. It really hasn't. All buyers has gone up dramatically. Repeat buyers have gone up dramatically, but first-time buyers hasn't gone up that much. This is a very fun slide to look at. You can see homeowner's equity and debt outstanding. <clears throat> here's the homeowner's equity and here's debt outstanding. American consumer and homeowner is doing just fine. FICO score has gone up. They've managed their money very well. Homes for sale, uh, that's gone, dramatically gone down. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a little gamble here and tell you that I do think getting a surge in starter homes will loosen up the move in, move out, move up syndrome. Uh, we have had basically no starter homes for <clears throat> 10, 12 years. It just hasn't been there. So it'll be fun to watch and see what happens on that. I think it'll have an impact. Mobility rates, <clears throat> even without even without the downturn, mobility was slowing down. Time in homes was going up. Uh, Family-related moves and employment-related moves have stayed just about the same since the late 90s. And then this is a chart that shows the percentage above the 10-year for mortgage rate. It is always between one and a half and two percent. So look at the 10-year, you can see where mortgage rates are, depending on availability and how long it's been there, the rates will go up and down between one and a half to two percent above the 10-year. 10-year was 1.6 percent this morning, and I think I saw a 30-year quote at 3.54. Um, you know, this is this is a problem we've all looked at. House prices have gone up faster than wages. This is a worthless slide, um, <laughs> but it is. I mean, first of all, when this first came out, you know what I got out of this when I first saw these numbers? That they don't have a, they don't have an idea in hell what's going to happen. I mean, no change, right? And that's what you predict when you don't know what's going to happen. One man's opinion: <clears throat> I do think the rates will stay below four percent this year. I think they'll go over 4% next year. I don't think they'll go up to 5%, but I think they'll be over 4% next year. I think they'll stay under 4% this year. First half of this year is gonna be very good, folks. It really is. Yeah, we got problems in inventory, and I understand that, and that's, a, that's an issue. But the biggest issue in, in this business, your business and my business, is demand, and demand's there, which is a good thing. So Oregon, real quickly, you can see we rank uh, 13th in FICO score at 718. Our top, <coughs> our top FICO location is where the best education is in Corvallis. <laughs> Nobody threw anything. <laughs> All right, states with the strongest job growth. We've had pretty good job growth here. Uh, 
2.3%. You can see states with the strongest job growth, been good. I got a little worried when uh, our, our job growth actually slowed down below the US average, then it went back above it. So I don't know quite happened. Same thing happened here, Portland metro area of the United States, 12 month percent change in employment. Give me a second on this one, because this is fascinating to me, and this talks a little bit about where we're going in the future. <coughs> you can see United States employment by, by industry. For the United States, government is 14.7% of all employment, and Oregon is 5.3%. Or Portland, Vancouver, Hill, Hillsborough, sorry, it's 5.3%. And you can see construction is 8.5% nationally, it's 16% in Portland, Vancouver, Hillsborough area. Train transportation, 14.2%. You know, it's about 8.5% here. Professional business services, 14.2%, here. I'm going to tell you something that I, was, I see happening in the Portland-Vancouver area. You're going to see a growth in professional financial business services over the next 10 years. It's a logical progression. We've had a tremendous influx of very bright, highly educated kids. Right? Um, we are actually starting to have a fairly large percentage of higher earning, potentially higher earning, highly educated kids. You will start seeing more professional services, more financial services, more of a, a maturation process of Oregon. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Non-farm employment growth in Oregon, and you know, kind of back down to where we were right here, but still positive. Uh, healthcare has gone up. Everything else went down a little bit last year. This is hourly wages by area. Portland area, twenty-eight dollars and seventy-one. Clackamas, twenty-six sixty. You get over in Eastern Oregon, it's down to around $20. So there's quite a, quite a disparity in income uh, by area. Housing affordability, Portland is fine. Portland runs right here in the, in the middle. Uh, Seattle is expensive, San Francisco, LA is expensive. Population growth, again, this is what happens when people don't know what's gonna happen. They project just a flat line. So, I, I don't know, I don't put too much in that. Population growth by county, this, uh, you can look at these slides and download them, but this shows uh, the metropolitan area. Annual wage growth has started back up. I was getting a little bit concerned here, but it started back up fairly nicely. This is just a quick glimpse in time because something happened. It happened between the end of 2018 and summer of 2019. And what you're really seeing is the fastest growing counties moved out of the metropolitan area. You know, we had the metropolitan area recovered metropolitan area, the Willamette Valley, recovered for the first six or seven years of the recovery. Now it's getting a little bit more statewide. As you can see, the fastest growing counties, you know, Washington and uh, Clackamas are no longer in the, in the top ten. Regional expansion, Bend, Portland, Corvallis, and then down from there. Housing permits, and now this is starting to go up too, so we'll see how that goes. I know, uh, I know Lennar's coming in this area big with Starling Homes. Single family permits, rest of the state, Portland. We, I think you'll start seeing a pickup here. I really do. Biggest problem we got here is the urban growth boundary, the lack of infrastructure, right? Uh, you know what? The, I mean, somebody know these, some of you know this, some of you don't. You want to build a home, you know what the uh, permit fee is to build a home? Well, in some places it's 43500 That is ludicrous, right? Employment growth. Health, health services, professional business, so forth and so on. Single family permits, again, Oregon is, uh, Portland metropolitan statistical area is lagged the rest of the state, but I think you're gonna start to see that closing up a little bit. 
affordability index. You know, we're right where we were in the early 2000s in terms of affordability. Not as affordable as it was right after the recession, but not anywhere near as tight. This stunned me. This stunned me. I mean, I, I, I had a hard time believing this. So one thing that Uncle Pat does is I, I don't buy into one market being more expensive than another. I do the median sales price divided by the median household income. And that tells you how to relate the market one is more expensive than the other, right? So you can see Clackamas County is the most expensive of the three counties. Hard to believe, but it is. Right? And then Multnomah in Washington County. Anybody want to guess what Seattle is right now? Uh, Seattle's about 8.6, so is Denver. San Francisco is about 17. Los Angeles is 16. I tell you, we are, uh, we're in a good place. Homes are affordable here, comparatively speaking. My favorite slide, employment versus price. <clears throat> we started to get a little bit of ahead of ourselves on price right here, but we're running track, we're tr tracking hand in hand right now. Very, very healthy. We are living in a very healthy market being driven by employment, okay? Not being driven by speculation. You have customers who say, do these house prices worry you? <clears throat> Point out to them that these house prices are demand-driven based on employment. That's sustainable. Typically, do not get a bubble. You don't get a drop in house prices in this kind of metric. You notice here, we had house prices running way ahead of employment. That's called a bubble, right? And they dropped. This one, that will, there won't be a drop from here. All right, thank you. That's all we got for today. To learn more about Portland, make sure you hit that subscribe button and please leave us a review. And make sure you check them out and subscribe to their YouTube channel, Living in Portland, Oregon, and follow them on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. If you are even thinking about moving or relocating to the Portland Metro or Southwest Washington, make sure to give them a call, shoot them a text, or send them an email because they got your back when moving to the Portland Metro.